God bless guys and welcome back to Research Podcast. Uh, today we wrap things up with the, with the section that we've been covering here in First John for the past few episodes. And we've come to the conclusive thoughts of John, at least for now, you know, where, um, where we've been dealing with uh, false teachers primarily in this section, chapter 2. Um, but let's kind of just remind ourselves of, of what has come prior before we get into the verses that we're going to be uh, thinking upon or meditating on. So as you know, we've been focusing on five main points that we've drawn out from this portion, and they are the warning. If you recall, uh, he starts off by giving us this warning that there are going to be many false teachers or antichrists, as he uh, refers uh, to them. These antichrists are anything that goes obviously uh, contrary to to the Christ, to Jesus. Uh, then he moved on to the encouragement, which was essentially, if you recall, we were thinking upon how uh, this congregation had just experienced certain loss of members, um, not to death, but really to, to false teaching where they were essentially persuaded to abandon their faith and go on, go and follow the, the footsteps of these false teachers. Um, and so with that, it left a sting a little bit, right? And would have raised certain questions to John. And so John reminds them of the sovereignty of God to them as a form of encouragement that the fact that they had left them was indication to them that they never were really of them, meaning that it dictated to them uh, what genuine believers ought to um, look for in a genuine conversion, which was one of those things is is exactly that, remaining within the faith, um, which segues us into the third point, which was how do we make distinctions between um, the genuine believer and the ingenuine believer, those who are just there for appearance sake, those who look the part, dress the part, sound the part, but are not actually truly believers. And so one of those uh, key indicators or distinctions that John makes is, well, firstly, that they remain, that they are faithful, that they abide. These are words that, that um, in particular, abiding, that, that John loves. John uses the wor- this word abide um, quite, quite regularly. So he says the first thing is that, right? That those are one of those key indicators is that they remain within the faith. The other thing is that they are anointed. They have been anointed by the anointer. We recognize that Jesus is the one that anoints us. And uh, scripture tells us that it is through the spirit that we are anointed, that he anoints us rather with the spirit. Um, And the third element is that the church is characterized by truth, that we possess truth, that we have truth, that we um, uh, are beholders of truth and so these are some of the indicators that separate those who are false and those who are <clears throat> those who are in in genuine um, and last time we were together we looked at more closely uh, the fourth point which was John gives us a few things to look at in terms of what characterizes a false teacher what are some key indicators that help us to identify them as false teachers and John says that if anyone denies Jesus that this is pretty much the clear indicator that they're false teachers now we've noted on numerous occasions now that one of the main antagonists of the church in John's day were those that 
were known as or have come to be known as the docetics that believe in docetism which was practically a marriage between Gnosticism and the Christian teaching that led to this hybrid or deformity of Christian doctrine where, where the belief was that Jesus did not in fact possess a human body as we know it. But those were not the only ones that John was contending with as we, we made mention last time. John had to face another one, one that has been uh, a common enemy, if you will, of the early church and that was the Jews, the Jewish believers. And they were uh, another old foe that John had to go up against. And not just John, but like I said, all throughout the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul contends with them, obviously. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is practically, that's essentially what that letter, letter is, that sermon. So, the, the, that, so we see that John is contending with this faith, with this belief system, right? The Judaism. And it was a, a formidable um, opponent because of the rich tradition and history that it had. It served in its favor to help persuade some Christians to either return back to Judaism, which was the case in, in the, you know, the book of Hebrews, where essentially it was these ex-Jews um, who converted to Christianity were now reconsidering going back to Judaism. So it was very persuasive in that sense. Or we were pressing, um, if not, if not, if they weren't uh, tackling or attacking um, Christian Jews, they were going after the Gentiles as well in the form of the Judaizers, which we see that in the letter that Paul writes to the Galatian church, right? Where these guys were essentially saying that, that it was necessary for these Gentiles to be circumcised to complete, if you would, uh, their their conversion. And so we saw last week how, how John, in a kind of a swift move, he pointed out uh, to his Jewish uh, contemporaries that if they are not accepting the Son, if they are non-accepting of Jesus, then by result of their rejection, they were not accepting of the Father. A void of one meant a void of the other. And so we pointed out also just in a brief way that how in a subtle way, just in that, um, those verses, it, it kind of points to us this Trinitarian relationship that these uh, doctrines point towards in a subtle way. What we must conclude from this wonderful section is something that the church has proclaimed for the past 2,000 years that a rejection of the biblical Christ was a rejection of God entirely, completely. Even if you held to a monotheistic perspective that, that Yahweh is God, if you reject Christ, who is the exact imprint of the Father, as the author of Hebrew tells us, and as Paul reminds us that Christ is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, then you have rejected God himself. And therefore, God does not abide in you nor you in the Father, if indeed you are not in Christ, in his Christ, in his Messiah. That's essentially what John is saying here. Now, we, we, we originally wanted to end up on verses um, 25, I believe. Um, but I think we're going to extend to 26 to 27 as, as we get into this. 
um, <clears throat> into this last last section. Uh, he wraps his thoughts up in in those verses. Um, so at least that's the goal. So bear with me, if you will, if we go a little bit longer than what I intend to. Um, but let's just get straight to that. Let's read the text and then we'll get straight to it. So we're going to be reading John, First um, John, chapter two. We're going to read verse 24 all the way to 27. And hopefully we can comment on all of these verses. <clears throat> the Word of God says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And we'll leave it there. Amen. So previously in this series, we, we've meditated on the uniqueness or the, or the unique characteristics that we as human, humanity possess, we as human beings, in particular, the fact that we have the ability to speak, to communicate is one of the clearest distinctive um, characteristics that separate us, our nature uh, from the rest of creation. Communication is indeed a great gift from God, but what is even greater than the gift of communication is the gift of saving faith. And that's what point, Paul points towards us in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that not, not all are given this gift to believe. Most of us are given the gift to communicate. Even if you can't speak or hear, there are ways through which we can express or communicate whatever it is that we want to um, get across. But the gift of saving faith is not given to all. And this is evident in, in any presentation of the gospel at any local church or any evangelistic rally, right? Where you can fill a room of hundreds of people and all hear the exact same presentation of the gospel. And yet, not all will come to saving faith. Why does one come to saving faith in the proclamation of the gospel and another does not? Does it come down to the persuasive pr presentation of the preacher? Certainly not. Both heard the exact same message. So th therefore, does it come down to the resistance of one over the other? Like one was just more resistant. He, he, one was more uh, accepting of the other. No, certainly not. Both heard the same message and both come with the same restrictive heart with no desire to seek after God. As scripture tells us, no one seeks after God. No, not one. But one received the truth and while the other did not. The difference was that one received saving faith, was given saving faith as a gift and the other did not. Scripture tells us that faith comes from the hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so John says to the congregation that the message that they had received from the beginning, that that is what they need to abide in. Return back to that. Remember that. The message that they had received was not 
new information for them to mentally digest or store away as many do but rather the implication is that the message that they've received is not just plain words circling around our minds but it is the very power of God that brings salvation with it that's essentially what the gospel is it is the power of God to change a man And so for these brothers who had already genuinely believed and received the saving faith, the gospel, right? In the gospel. They didn't need to be persuaded to go deeper or further in something else. You know, they were convinced somehow that what these false teachers were possessing was this deeper truth beyond or separate to the message that they had already received, which was a lie. And a lot of the times we get in that same mental um, state of mind, if you will, where we are persuaded that we are listening to something profound, but after examining it, you realize it, there's no, there's nothing there. It's, it's void of any substance. And I remember when I was younger, I, I enjoyed a lot of that type of preaching from prominent Pentecostals who would hold this, ep- you know, I mean, I live in Sydney, Australia, so you can kind of figure out um, in terms of uh, what church I'm, I'm referring to here. But, you know, these churches hold these epic long, long, week long, sorry, um, conferences in where, you know, they have this crazy lineup of, of just um, yeah, amazing speakers, very well communicators, um, th- these guys that would give, throw away these one-liner statements that just seemed so deep, right? Um, which in actuality, like when, when in retrospect, just going back to them or hearing them now, um, really were just empty, vague statements that really said nothing at all and taught nothing of Scripture, you know, when I would hear these guys, I, I remember thinking to myself, man, this is so deep. You know, I thought to myself, I was going deeper in the word. But in reality, it was not the gospel. At best, it was psychological mumbo jumbo with a few Bible verses that were taken out of context, thrown in the mix. But sometimes that's what it is. That's all it takes to persuade a person. The charismatic and persuasive speech can really convince many in thinking that what they are hearing is true. It is biblical and it is profound. But it's just smoke and mirrors. I don't hesitate to say that, that this is the type of persuasion that was going on at the time when John writes this letter. Where many of these um, <clears throat> false teachers were very convincing with a persuasive and charismatic presentation of what they call to be true or, or truth or new insight. Eventually, those who, who belong to the shepherd will, would hear their master's voice in the midst of this chaos and will discern, will be able to discern between truth and words that were only serving in terms of tickling the masses' ears. That's what we see in, in John's day. That's what we see in our day. And so John's encouragement to the congregation becomes even more pressing for us to heed their instruction, to abide in the truth that they had heard from the beginning because nothing but the revealed truth of God possesses the power of God. 
We need to believe that. Do we believe that today? That the, the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God. Therefore, the call to remain or abide within the truth that has been revealed to us through the apostles. If we desire to go deeper in the truth, then that is where we need to go. There is no other place to remain in other than the gospel. What these other members of the congregation that had left the church did was they, they essentially they just wet their feet in the ocean that we call the gospel only to abandon those depths in exchange for a shallow waters of, of a pond somewhere nearby. It's not the same thing. And the result of not abiding in what they had originally heard from the apostles would lead this congregation away from the Son and the Father and prove, just like the others, that they were not truly of them. That's what happens and that is what John is warning them against. Not only would another Jesus lead us away from the fellowship with God, but also to another gospel, another message that was not the apostles' message. Another message would lead them away from that same fellowship. That is John's concern here. That is John's concern for the church, not only of his day, but even for us today, because the apostles still teach us, right, through the scriptures. His encouragement is that we return to the message that we heard at the beginning. That is the message of Christ. And in that lies the power of God. It is very easy for us to be distracted by the smoke and mirrors of these modern day false teachers and preachers who call themselves, you know, teachers or, or sometimes they say, you know, life coaches. I agree with Paul Washer who says, I'm glad that they don't call themselves pastors because they are not. You know, they, they have these fancy stages, always with that, that perfect lighting, dressed like teenage models, right? Wearing the latest gear, big screens, mystifying background music that sets the right tone, that vibe, right? The engaging storytelling, the lighthearted humor to sedate the people's minds. Really what I've discovered to you or described to you rather could easily be applied to any other form of entertainment. Think about it. I mean, all those elements are found elsewhere in entertainment. Everything that I just described to you. I mean, that thought alone should bring you to question a lot of modern day preachers. I would love to see one of these guys remove all those elements that they have, you know, that I've just listed to you. And see how far they could go in actually teaching the Word of God. The answer is that they wouldn't get that very far. Because the truth of the matter is that they depend upon these things. They do not teach you the truth of the Word of God. It is so necessary to have that right lighting, to have that right look, to have that right sound. Right? Because they depend upon those things to persuade people, the masses, that what they're hearing is truth. They don't depend upon the gospel in which the power of God lies within. They don't preach the gospel. Therefore, they don't have the power of God. Speaking of the author of Hebrews, as we've mentioned previously, there is one passage that many 
uh, have come to remember from that, that letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's the description of what faith is, right? Assurance on things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. If I could represent this in terms of, in another way, or present it to you in another way that relates to what we're speaking of here. Faith is essentially seeing with our ears and not with our eyes. Seeing with our ears and not with our eyes. What do I mean by this? Is that we ought to see things not as our eyes perceive, right? The presentation, the smoke, the lights, the, the well-dressed, all that, that smoke and mirrors. But cut through that. Actually hear what is being said. Hear what the Word of God tells us. Hear that. And you will be able to see right through that. See through the lies, right? Because there lies truth and there is where our faith must be. It is in the Word of God. That is what tells us. That is what reveals to us. That is what removes the veil from our eyes so that we can see clearly. We need to see things through our ears. Listen to the Word of God. This, uh, this is what the, the guidance of the Spirit through the Word of God looks like. Let's read verse 26 to 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it, uh, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. In verses 26 and 27, we come to the portion in which John unpacks a little further this concept of abiding in the truth revealed to them from the beginning. But first he shares his motive in writing this letter to the congregation. He says to them that he writes these things to them about those who are trying to deceive them. Right? His desire is that they wouldn't be deceived. And this really has been kind of the heart of what we've been trying to do or get across here. Truth is destructive. Yes, it's true. But truth is destructive only to those that build with bricks made of lies. That's the only way, the only time that truth is destructive. But many only see the, dis the destructive nature of truth. And thus they conclude that, that telling the truth is evil. No. The lies that many people share and believe and confess, that's the real evil. But many have been deceived in thinking that. That, that lies, those deceitful words, those that false notion of trying to keep peace and unity on grounds that really is just, it's lies. If it's grounded on lies, it is useless. But we won't spend too much time on this. We, we've covered quite some, we, we've covered a lot actually extensively in previous considerations of this. So we'll just move on. But what I do want to place emphasis upon now is this anointing that John speaks of that abides in us as believers. For what purpose should this anointing be actively serving in us. John is clear that this anointing ought to be a, a, a leading or, or it should be leading us into truth. This anointing that we have, uh, as we've said, is the Holy Spirit. 
this Holy Spirit that we possess is the one that teaches us. And thus we do not require that anyone should teach us. Now, again, I want to stop here. It's important that we be clear on this, on this matter. That John isn't saying or suggesting to us that once we, we become believers, that we are filled with you know, the full knowledge of the word of God and, and therefore like, you know, don't talk to me because I know everything. I think all of us could attest to the reality that we definitely need guidance, the guidance of God. And, and God has provided that. He has appointed men who lead us and instruct us in biblical truth. They are, after all, as the scriptures um, describe them, they are gifts to his church. Men specifically called to the office of teacher, preacher or pastor. Right, and of course we have the apostles and the prophets in Scripture that that are the corner, the, the foundation of, of the church. Right, so we have those teachings, and we have these pastors and preachers and teachers and evangelists in in our day. Nor does this suggest to us as well that we can therefore, you know, from kind of like a practical day to day point of view, which is a very common belief, that we can just kind of communicate, or the Holy Spirit kind of communicates with us, and we could just kind of like ask Him for a sign. A lot of people are, are mystical in terms of the way they relate with with um, to the Word of God and to the Spirit, uh, where they, you know, they ask God to give us a sign. You know, we're, we're trying to decide as to what path to take, and so God, we pray, you know, give us a sign, give us guidance in our lives in terms of what you know, what door I should walk through, you know, instead it is, it's, that's not how it is. The way we engage with the spirit is through the word of God, meditating upon what God's will is, what pleases him, what, what doesn't please him and, and, you know, what he instructs us to do and what to avoid. This is how we interact with the word of God and the spirit, right? The spirit convicts us of these truths so that we stay away from those things. And so this is how we engage with it. We never open up the script and, you know, kind of like wherever we open up the word and wherever, you know, we so happen to open up scripture to that, we take that as a sign as to what we are to do for that day. That is not how the scriptures ought to be read. That is not how the scripture gives us uh, guidance or that's not how the spirit gives us guidance. You don't just open up the Bible and just be like, oh yeah, whatever it says in this moment, in this portion, that's what I'm going to do. No, no, no. You, you study the word of God. You engage, you pray about it. God, work in me this truth. Give me understanding, right? Um, so that's the way we do it. So the word of God is, is the revealer of truth. It reveals us his will. It reveals to us what God wants for us. And thus, through that, it reveals God, who is God to us. So spending time in the word is vital to our, to our growth, to our sanctification. This is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. How this anointing uh, serves in our day-to-day. We don't need to open up a Bible at a random place and whatever it leaps out at us, you know, we, we must put to practice that day. There, there are a lot of narrative portions in the Bible, right, in the Old Testament in particular, that if you don't properly interpret that, you could get in a lot of trouble. You know, if you simply view it as an instructive, uh, you know, um, if you don't see it as a descriptive text, like it's describing to you a story and you, you make it mean uh, something that is prescriptive, as in this is what you must do. You can get, get in a lot of trouble if you interpret scripture that way. So know that the scriptures teach us about God's will and his standards that we can apply to our day to day. All right. The principles. And so when we familiarize ourselves with it, our day to day choices that we make are simplified. 
Should I take the job that compromises on Christian ethics? Obviously not. Should I date the person who doesn't believe in God? Obviously not, right? So God's truth is sufficient for all aspects of our lives. It is the means through which God leads us and guides us. This sanctity, right? This, this anointing that the Spirit does, but he, he walks through the Word of God. So not only does the Scripture function as a revealer of truth in the hands of the most capable teacher, right? The Spirit of Christ. But it, it also functions as a sanctifying tool in the hands of the Spirit as well. John says in his gospel, recalling the priestly prayer of Christ, he says in 1717, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And it is in this sense that we speak of the power of God. This is what we're referring to. This is why he's saying abide in this, right? Because it indeed is the power of God in his word through the spirit. You know, the sanctifying power of His Word is an effective agent through which God uses to continually bring change into the life of the believer, shaping them, conforming them to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. The sanctifying and, and teaching and instructive Word of the Spirit is never in isolation from the Word of Truth. It is always done through the word of truth. The spirit works with the tools that is the word of God. The hammer and fire. It is the word of God. The spirit uses that in us. It is never in isolation or indifferent to the word of God. So if you are, you know, those who claim I heard from God say, Oh, geez, it's always... It's always cringeworthy because, mate, that's not how it works. God is speaking to you. God has spoken to you clearly and completely in His Word. Hence why the instruction to abide in what they had heard is so necessary to the believer. And so John calls the believer to remain in which uh, they had received in that message that they had received from the beginning, the truth that they had, you know, had set them free. Remain in that. Go deeper in your knowledge of that truth. You are not going deeper in truth if you go outside of what Scripture teaches us so clearly. You are not. There will, there will not be a progressive change, a growth in sanctification, a deeper knowledge in God's Word if the truth is neglected for whatever may be trending at the moment. I say this again, many, many search after miracles and signs and wonders where great healings are claimed to have taken place. We, you know, many search that out, you know, which really there'd never been any evidence, real evidence at all whatsoever, never been provided in any way, shape or form. But we, we are constantly, the church, the modern day is so malnourished that they're looking for these external things. And we, we, we've, in previous talks, we've mentioned this. They are blind to the real work of, of power demonstrated every day. All we need to do is walk into a church, a Bible-believing church, where men and women who once hated God are now serving Him willfully, joyfully. Even most of the times, right? Even through struggle, even through loss, 
even through pain. They have been changed and are continually being changed from glory to glory. There is your manifestation of God's redemptive power. The miracle of bringing what was once dead, now alive in Jesus. That is the power of God through the gospel. There is this idea that has sprung up in our, in our churches with this misguided desire to be pursuing the gifts of the Spirit as the primary goal of the believer, under which healings and, and, and miracles fall under, right? These gifts of the Spirit, there are gifts, there are graces, right? That God has provided the church indeed, right? But to borrow the language of Jonathan Edwards, we fail to properly distinguish between these gifts, as he calls them. One is common gifts, and the other is extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. We fail in the sense that we've placed higher value to the extraordinary gifts when Scripture does not do that. It doesn't do that. It never placed greater emphasis or importance or value on the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, but rather a scripture always gives greater value or importance to the common gifts of the Spirit. Because the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit served a purpose and that purpose was fulfilled. Now, now I'm not trying to get into a discussion about sensationalism versus continualism. You know, that's not the subject that I'm trying to focus on. But I'm, I bring this up only to, to raise uh, Edward's argument, which, which really is just... Paul's argument, but the way that Edwards presents this argument is that the common gifts that God gave the church are far superior to the extraordinary gifts. His reason is simple and it's just logical. The reason is because whether you believe in the gifts of, you know, of tongues and all those things, miracles and whatever, if, if you believe in the gifts to continue on today, or have seized, wherever you stand on this, we all are cessationalists at the end of the day because they will seize. They will end when we reach heaven. They will end eventually. Edward's argument is therefore, since the extraordinary gifts do not make it into heaven, they should not be considered as greater gifts, rather lesser gifts. And since the common gifts continue into heaven, then these are the ones that we must aspire to even more, of which love stands above all the rest, right? Because it is love that fuels not only the common gifts, but the extraordinary gifts to begin with. In short, seek love. It's, it's better than healings. It's better than tongues. It is not... It is not these extraordinary gifts that we should seek, but rather the common gifts, the common gifts that God has given us through His Spirit. And is this not the argument of Paul? To borrow or quote from Sinclair Ferguson, gifts always need to be accompanied by grace or graces. All this to say this, that the greatest work of God is not healings that happened. As, as great as they are, 
They do not compare to regeneration that occurs in a believer. The sanctifying work of the Spirit through the Word. Because it is this work that will last. It is this work that carries us into eternity. A healing is great, but we will eventually die. We will eventually get sick. And that work won't last. But a changed heart and nature that will the common gifts of the spirit in this sense is far superior to the extraordinary extraordinary gifts of the spirit they carry on even onto eternity and thus john's instruction to remain in the truth uh, it, it becomes evident to stay in that for in it lies the sanctifying power of God, the work that prepares us for eternity. It says remain in that, in the word, because that is what is molding you, shaping you, changing you, making you more like Christ, preparing you for eternity. It is these common graces, not the extraordinary ones. Do not step outside of that, for only death lies outside of Christ. Remain, abide in Him. Now I want to read verse 25, and with this we'll conclude. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. So why remain or abide in what we've heard? What's at stake? What's the big deal? What difference does it make? Don't we all believe in Jesus at the end of the day? These are the questions to ask and ones that, that are asked commonly in the attempt to brush away the uh, divisive talk of who the real Jesus is. But what is the big deal? That what, what is at stake here? John tells us in this verse that there is a promise that is being offered that goes beyond intellectual information. That is eternal life. There is no greater thing at stake than our eternal destination beyond this life on earth. There is not a matter, there is not a matter what you would, you know, uh, greater than this. You know, it, it is, there's nothing more important than, than where you will spend the rest of eternity. It, it, it doesn't matter in comparison what you will do after high school, right? This is a big deal. It doesn't matter what you would choose in terms of, you know, spend the rest of your life with. It doesn't matter what career you want to choose or your business adventure that you want to venture off into. What is mostly at stake is your life beyond this one, beyond death. This must be the most important to us all to consider without any fail. The promise of eternal life is what has been offered to us by and in and through Christ. What we should consider is not only the promise being offered that is eternal life, but as such we must consider as to who it is that is offering it as well. This would have been most compelling to the Jewish audience to which we've argued that he's directing towards. John has been making the case that the rejection of Jesus was the rejection of God, the rejection of Yahweh himself. And so we see the promise that is being offered is, is coming from God himself. This is the only offer he has extended to fallen humanity. And the offer is grounded upon the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son Jesus, whom he put forward as our propitiation. 
There could be no greater grounds upon which we should take what John is saying serious. I mean, this is huge. The distinction and variations of Jesus presented to us and them, you know, through these false teachers is, is of great importance, of greatest importance. And that is why he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you because of what is at stake here. That every preacher, every preacher that stands up on a pulpit and proclaims to you this, the truth of, of who Jesus is from Scripture is doing the exact same thing. We, we are warning you about those who profess this false Christ. John takes on these claims that the Docetics and the Jews presented to the church head on. And in essence, he tells them this is the consequence of their rejection of this truth. They lose out on eternal life. John was certain as to who Jesus was. He had no doubt. And that's what John shares with us in, in his, you know, the sixth chapter of his gospel. He recounts for us in the word of what our Lord was saying, that he was the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life, right? And he compares himself to bread that came from heaven, right? In Moses' time. Jewish people would have acted negatively to that statement. But in verse 47, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you. And I just want to stop there for a second. Point out to you. He doesn't speak like the normal prophets of, of old where, where they would say, Thus says the Lord, right? Instead, he comes with greater authority as the son of God, right? He says, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes, believes what? Believes in me. How could Jesus make such a statement to Jews? Aren't we called to believe God alone? Yes, and that's what he's doing. Amen, amen, I say to you. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me has eternal life. The consequence is failure to inherit eternal life. If we don't believe in the real Jesus. Another interesting element in this is how Jesus compared his flesh to the bread and, and, and the drinking of his blood, right? Something that the Docetics rejected was that Jesus indeed came in flesh and blood. And, but again, you see the same thing said to the Docetics. The rejection of the biblical Jesus is a rejection of eternal life. You need the humanity along with the divinity of Jesus. But after the negative reaction that Jesus received from the Jewish crowd, he turns to his disciples once again and pressing the issue on them personally, he asks them, do you want to leave also? To which Peter replies and ought to be the same response that John's church members would have had, right? Or should have given. And it's the same response that we too must give. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have what? Believed and have come to know. That's, that's from the word there. 
um, gnosko, right? Uh, it originates from that, that word there. It's just that intimate knowing someone. That you are the Holy One. Hagios, right? The Holy One of God. And with that phrase, we circle back to where we first started with this portion. The Holy One in verse 20. The anointer who anoints us with the Spirit of God. And so we close this portion by applying all this to you, the hearer. Have you come to know this Jesus of Scripture? Have you labored in, in learning more of Him in your Scripture reading? Are you abiding in the Word? Because as we bring this to an end, we end in the same way we started with a warning. There are many false teachers presenting a false Christ that John calls antichrists, imposters. There are many who profess a Christian faith but are not of the fellowship of his fold. But the, the promise of eternal life is offered through, exclusively through, the real, authentic Jesus. Not what others say of who he might be, but who he claims for himself to be. He is the bread of life and we are called to believe in him and him alone. Have you placed your faith in Him? Because without Him, you have no meaningful relationship with God. And your eternal destination is one away from His goodness. And all that is left is His wrath for you. Have you come to know this Jesus who saves us, who sanctifies us, who ushers us into eternity with Him? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask of you, O God, that you would bless this message. Father, I pray that you would remind us, O God, that there are many false Christs, as you do through your servant. As we wrap things up in this section, John warns us of those many false counter-Christs counter and false teachers that there are distinctions to be made between the genuine and the ingenuine. And that we have been given a promise. A promise of eternal life only in Jesus. Father, I pray that you bless this in Jesus' name. Amen.